Good morning, Orchardville Church. It is always good to be back in the house of God, and, and I hope and pray that you feel the same way. I just, I can't wait to get here uh, every Sunday morning. It's my prayer that that becomes your uh, truth as well. So uh, today we're going to start a brand new series called Build the Wall. Now, I don't know how many of you have done this, probably most everybody in here, you ever kind of like walked into the middle of a movie, somebody else is watching, and you sit down and, and, and it's, it's interesting enough, even though you didn't see the beginning, it's interesting enough that it catches your attention and you start, you start watching. And while you're watching, you're enjoying it, I mean, you're enjoying what you're seeing, but because it's so good, the whole time you're watching, you're thinking to yourself, man, I wonder what happened at the start of the movie. And, and you, you find yourself, well, did they do this? Did so-and-so say this? And, and you think about that because to every story, there's a backstory. And the backstory gives intrigue, it gives context, it gives meaning, it gives clarification to what's going on in the story that you are seeing right now. And so this morning, as we dive into the story of Nehemiah, what we find is that the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament tells a story of the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And we're going we're gonna to walk all the way through the book of Nehemiah. We're going to try to find out what's going on. But one of the things that Nehemiah does not tell us is why did the walls need to be rebuilt in the first place? Why were the walls torn down? Why, why didn't they have walls? Why in the world is this story of Nehemiah actually happening? And so before we dive into Nehemiah, I want to hit the pause button and kind of take you back to the beginning of the movie and give you some of the backstory, all right? So to understand the backstory, first of all, you have to understand a little bit uh, about uh, God's interaction and promises with Moses. Now, if you're a guest here and you're not a regular, um, I don't want to insult anybody, but I also don't want to assume just everybody knows who and what I'm talking about. So let me give you a quick thumbnail of Moses. Every Easter on ABC, I think it is, they show this movie called The Ten Commandments. Really cool movie. I know it's old. My kid, I have two boys, 28 and, uh, and 24. They think anything made before like the year 2000 is, is stupid. I, I don't know if, if y'all are in that same boat, but they did make good movies before the year 2000. And, uh, and the Ten Commandments is one of them. Moses is that guy that's associated with the Ten Commandments. Moses. So let it be written, so let it be done. Um, and uh, <laughs> I've watched it a few times. Uh, and so, so Moses, Moses grew up in Egypt. He killed an Egyptian. He ran for his life. He was banished from, from Egypt. And after a lot of years on the backside of the desert, God sends him back to Egypt to confront Pharaoh to let God's people, the Israelites, free from hundreds of years of slavery. 
So Moses shows up. And after 10 different miracles, finally Pharaoh relents and says, all right, get out of here. And so all of God's people, after hundreds of years of slavery, they finally get out. And miracle after miracle happens. And probably the greatest of all miracles was that God wiped out the Egyptian army in the Red Sea behind the Israelites. So that finally they could feel free and safe. Now, after all of those miracles, God said, all right, Moses, I need to have a little talk to you and with you about who I am, who you are as a people, and we need to make some understandings between us. And so that brings us to the first passage of scripture. I'm going to put this on the screen. It's from Leviticus chapter 26, verses 27 through 33. So God, through Moses, says this to all of his people. He says, after all of this, in other words, after, after all that I've done for you, after all of these miracles, after this deliverance that I have provided for you, if you don't obey me, but you walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you in fury, and I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins." You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you. Now, when he's talking about these things, he's talking about idol worship. In other words, after I've done all this, if you turn your back on me and you start chasing lifeless, worthless idols, this is what's going to happen. And he says, I'll lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation, and I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. I'll bring the land to desolation, and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. I will scatter you among the nations, and I will draw out a sword after you, and your land shall be desolated, and your cities waste. Join me in prayer. Father, as we dive into your word, as we begin to, to walk through the scriptures together, to understand what's going on in Nehemiah, but Lord, more directly to understand what you are saying to us today. God, will you open your word? Speak through me. God, through the Holy Spirit, would you let each person hear exactly what they need to hear today? God, these are your people, and this is your church, and this is your time. We pray this in your name, amen. So now some people might look at that passage of Scripture and go, wow, God is a meanie. Sounds pretty harsh. And especially when you think, wow, we just, we just sang a song that God is not against us. He's for us. And that's why context matters. Because God is for us. He's not against us. What's going on in this passage of scripture, every good parent should understand. Because you know what he's saying? He's saying, if you do A, then B is going to happen. You know what we call those? We call those natural consequences. If you touch a hot stove, what do you think is going to happen to your hand? It's going to burn. Is that because God's being mean to you? 
No, it's because the stove is hot, stupid. And so parents tell their children, don't touch the hot stove. Why? Because they're being big meanies? No, because they know that if you touch that hot stove, it's going to burn your hand. You're going to have a consequence that's going to be painful. Now, just a side note on this in terms of parenting. I think we're, we're looking at a generation these days, and, and you may not fall into this category if you're here this morning as a young parent. If, you're, if you don't, praise God for that. But I just want to urge you not to fall into the trap that most of the culture is falling into, and that is don't want to be too strict on their kids. I, I don't want to say anything that's going to hurt their feelings. Can I just tell you something, parents? To not give a warning in love offers disaster and pain because of your apathy. You may think you're showing love to your kid because you don't want to hurt their feelings. No, what you're showing is that you don't care. And God is being a good parent in this passage of scripture. He's going, I care. And I'm trying to tell you that if you turn your back on me after everything that I've done for you, this is what's going to happen. And it's not going to be good. And the, the reality of how bad it can be for you should be enough to keep you walking with me in gratitude and thanksgiving. So that's sort of the context of why God is saying what he's saying. But in Deuteronomy chapter 7, we read this. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you're the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he's God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. So pardon me for a moment ago, I, I, I was thinking ahead and, um, to, to this passage of scripture. That passage in Leviticus, it was a warning, right? It was a warning. This passage gives us the context for the warning because God is saying, I didn't pick you because you were awesome, I didn't pick you because you were bigger and better than everybody else. I picked you because I love you. And because I love you, that's the reason I warned you in those previous verses in Leviticus. And I am a God who shows mercy and keeps covenant for a thousand generations. God is saying, yes, I've given you a warning, but understand who I am. I'm not a God who's against you. I'm not a God who wants to see you come to ruin. I am a God who wants your best because I love you and I chose you. But then at the end, near the end of, of Moses' life and before the children of Israel finally got to go into the promised land, which we call modern day Israel, he talks to Moses and, and he shares this with 
the, the people. And he has said, he's already told them in the, in the chapters that come before this, there's a blessing and a curse. You get to pick, right? You get to pick. You get to pick what kind of life, what kind of future you're going to have. Verse 1 of Deuteronomy chapter 30. He says, and now it shall come to pass that when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you in. And then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. So this is the promise that God made to Moses and all of his people. I've already told you that if you don't follow me, if you don't live for me, if you turn your back on me, there are going to be consequences. And I'm telling you that because I love you. I chose you. I want the best for you. And so I set before you blessing and curse because you always get to choose. But God in his sovereignty already knew they were going to choose to turn their back on him. And so he says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, when you've done that and you've had the consequences of being scattered around to all of the lands and you've lost your home, if you will turn your heart back to me, then I will turn my heart toward you and I will bring you home. So what happened? Well, we know the story of, of Israel. Over and over and over again, they disobeyed God. They failed to live out the, the way that he had told them to live. And then God let them have the consequences that they chose. He let them be conquered and lose their homes. Babylon came in and conquered Jerusalem and conquered Israel and took them all into captivity. But as some over the years began to turn their heart back toward God, here's, God is so cool. God let the conquerors be conquered. So Persia came in and they conquered Babylon. And when they conquered Babylon, God miraculously allowed the, the kingdom and the king of Persia and the leaders of Persia to say, hey, some of you guys want to go back to Jerusalem? You can go back. And so there was a group of people Large number, but not everybody, left captivity, journeyed back from what is basically modern-day Iran, and they went back to Jerusalem, and they got to work. And over the course of time, they had been able to rebuild the altar for sacrifice. They'd been able to rebuild the temple or the church, but they had not been able to rebuild the wall. Now... Let me hold on right there for just a second. Because in our modern day sensibilities, we don't really understand what's the big deal. Why, why do you need a wall around a city? I mean, we don't need a wall around the city. 
I mean, so you say, well, I don't, we don't need a wall at the border. We don't need a wall here. We don't need a wall there. I mean, it doesn't matter because I don't understand walls. I don't understand why we need them. But in ancient times, a wall to them was as important and as essential as we would consider electricity in a police force. Like nobody would want to go live in a town in, in our culture today that didn't have electricity or didn't have police. We consider those essentials to maintaining structure, to maintaining peace, to maintaining organization, and to protect from anarchy. And in ancient days, that's how they viewed the wall. The wall symbolized strength and it symbolized peace because we're strong enough to build our own wall and protect ourselves from intruders. The wall indicated lots of things. It, in, it indicated strength. It indicated protection. Because nobody can get in. We're, we, are, we are safe in this place. Walls provided identity because it would, it would mark out the boundaries of who a group of people were. And they said, this is us. This is our place. This is our spot. This is who we are. And for God's people in Jerusalem, it was even more than that because it identified them as God's people. This is where God's people are. We don't serve the gods of the world. We serve the one true living Jehovah God. And so it provided that identity for them. It provided vision. Because when you had a wall, you could, you could get up to the top of the wall and you could look out over the horizon and you could be prepared for whatever was coming. You didn't have to be surprised by all of a sudden something happening that you couldn't see coming in a distance and be ready for it. A wall provided all of those things and more in ancient times. And for Israel and Jerusalem in particular, when the wall was standing and it provided all of those things and more when the wall was standing and the temple was in operation and working as it should or the church was in operation and working as it should when people were living according to the teaching and the precepts of God then life was good life was as it should be but here's what they found and here's what we still find today. When those things begin to break down, when those things begin to fall apart, then life can become difficult at best and desperate at worst. That's what was going on in Jerusalem when we pick up the story of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah chapter 1. reading from the New King James for this series. This is where we meet Nehemiah. So I'm going to read the first four verses and then we'll hit the pause button. Verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, from Jerusalem. 
And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. And so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and I wept and I mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. See, in in these first four verses, we're introduced to Nehemiah. And we see that Nehemiah was in Shushan. And in case you don't know where that is, that was a, a, a palace for Persian kings, probably also in, in Iran. And just for reference, if you know the story of Esther, this is the same place where the story of Esther takes place. So Nehemiah was one of those people who was suffering, if you will, from the effects of of the rebellion of God's people and being scattered all around the world. And he was now living along with his family in Shushan. And his brother was one of those people who had gone back to Jerusalem to help rebuild the city. And so one day he gets a visit from his brother and he says, how's it going? Man, I wanna know how my people are doing. How are God's people doing? That was a long trip, and there's a lot of work to do. How are they doing? How are they holding up? And his brother tells him, it's not good. Man, it's not good. I mean, they're they're struggling. They're in distress, and they're in, in, in reproach because it was reproach not to have a wall. Because you're nothing. If you don't have a wall, you're nothing. You're nobody. And and because they had no wall, they were open to attacks from anybody and everybody. And it caused a lot of distress in their lives. And if that wasn't bad enough, he said, his brother told him, all the walls are gone and the gates are burned down. I mean, there's nothing. So in other words, there was no safety. They had nothing to protect them. They had no identity. We, we, we talked about understanding who our identity is this morning in God. They had no identity. They didn't know who they were anymore. They couldn't proclaim who they were. They had no identity. They had no vision. They couldn't see what was coming. And it felt utterly hopeless. And the weight of that reality hit Nehemiah like a ton of bricks. The weight of the difficult and horrible situation of his friends and his family and his brother and those who had made this long trip back to Jerusalem, it just overwhelmed him and he fell to his knees and wept. Church, I want you to listen to me very carefully this morning. The path toward healing of any kind, whatever kind of healing you need in your life this morning, the path toward healing 
the path toward restoration, the path to, to take something back to a preferred condition, the path to hope. It starts with a burden. Nehemiah felt the weight of the reality that they were faced with. Everybody has rocks on their seat this morning. I want you to grab it, put it in your hand. Had somebody joke with me this morning, you're a brave preacher. I said, it's the worst decision I've ever made as a pastor to rethink this whole thing. These are not huge, but they've got a little weight to them, right? I want you to just feel that weight. And I want you to imagine what's not as it should be in your life. What is not that actually should be? And whatever that is, I want you to let this represent that for this morning. I just want you to take a moment. I just want you to feel it. I want you to ponder it. And I don't mean this facetiously. I don't mean this to be humorous. If you're feeling like, I can't think of anything, then I'm going to tell you, you need to ask the Lord to check your pride. Because there's not a person in here this morning that doesn't have it's something that is not as it should be. Feel the weight of it. Let it be a burden to you right now. God, what in my life needs to be restored? What in my life needs to be healed? What in my life is not as it should be? Let this be that thing, and I want you to just hold on to this for the rest of of the message this morning. I want you to feel it. I want you to to let it continue to just kind of resonate in your mind and in your thoughts and in your prayers while while we continue to speak. There's an old saying that goes like this, when, when you find yourself in a hole, stop digging, right? You know that saying. But you know what most of us do? We grab the shovel and we keep digging deeper. And we just get it, keep getting deeper and deeper and deeper until we find ourselves at a place or we find our church at a place where we are far from where we want to be and we are far from where we ought to be because we've continued to dig the hole deeper and deeper and deeper and rather than fall to our knees and ask God for guidance and his grace we try to fix it ourselves and, and, and to quote Dr. Phil, how's that working for you? Not too good. 
And it especially doesn't work too good because most of the times we created the problem in the first place. And here we are, we created the problem and somehow we think we're smart enough or good enough to fix it. And only as a last resort do we get to where we will come to God and fall on our knees and say, God, help me. But that's actually where Nehemiah started. As soon as he felt the burden of what was going on, he didn't try to fix it. He went to his knees and he began to seek God. He prayed and he fasted and he sought the Lord's guidance for a problem that he could not and did not know how to fix. And church, in our personal lives and in the lives of our congregation as a whole, we have got to learn that lesson from Nehemiah this morning. We gotta stop trying to fix our own problems and use prayer as a last resort. We gotta go there first. So that's a lesson we absolutely need to to learn, but I think we also need to learn from what Nehemiah prayed. So let's look at verse five. I've been reading in verse five. Nehemiah says, I said, I pray, Lord, God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and, and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you. And we have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded, your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and you keep my commandments and you do them, Though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. It's an amazing prayer. There's three quick things I want to point out to you about that prayer that we need to understand and we need to learn from. The first one is that he reminded God and he reminded himself of who God was. Look at verse five again. He says, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. You know what he's saying? God, I'm coming to you and I'm reminding you that you have declared yourself as a God who is merciful. You have declared yourself as a God who will keep his word. And God, I'm counting on that. I'm counting on that. And he says, Lord, you are a great and awesome God. And when we come to the Lord in prayer, I think that's a lesson that we all need to learn. It is powerful to come back to the Lord and not only remind him, but of ourselves, this is who God is. 
This is the God that we're praying to. He's not a God who doesn't care. He's not a God who says, good luck to you, I'm done. He's not a God who doesn't listen. He's not a God who turns his back on us. God, you are a great and awesome and merciful God. And when we come and we begin, our, we share our burden to the Lord in prayer and we remind him and us that he is an awesome God, then we understand the value of praying. Because Jesus said, is anything impossible for me? No. That's the God that we're praying to. The God where nothing is impossible, the God who is merciful and remembers his covenant. But then on top of that, he confessed. And he didn't just say, I'm sorry. He confessed deeply. Now, we live in a world now where I'm sorry is, is, I mean, hey, it's better than nothing. But it's an easy way out. And do you think Nehemiah, do you think he was really the reason that all this stuff had happened? Do you think him personally was the reason that it happened? Well, of course not. But you know what? Nehemiah understood that he was not the problem, but he was part of the problem. And so he owned the problem not only for the whole, but he owned his part in it. And he said, God, I'm coming to you and I am, I am confessing that our people, my family has sinned against you. We have done wrong against you, God. But he didn't stop there. He said, so have I. So have I. Churches are places where it becomes really easy to become self-righteous where it becomes really easy to hide behind the facade that we bring with us to church on Sunday morning. It's a place where it's really easy to act like we've got it all together and we've never messed up. But behind closed doors and with nobody looking, just Nehemiah and God, Nehemiah got on his knees and he said, God, we have sinned against you, but Lord, it's not just everybody else. I have too. Do you feel the weight of that this morning? Do you feel the weight of sinning against God? A God who has shown you love and compassion, who has shown me mercy over and over again, who has displayed miracle after miracle in the context of our lives, and yet we sin against him. Do you feel the weight of that this morning? Because Nehemiah did. And we need to follow his example, and we need to confess our sin to God. But then in verses eight and nine, he reminded God of his promises. He said, Lord, would you remember? Remember what you promised? Because you said if we would turn back, that you would bring us back. 
See, one of the greatest things that you can do in prayer for your own heart is in prayer remind God of his promises because his promises are promises to you. What if, what if you went to God today and you said, God, remember what you said in John 6, 37, that if any man will come to me, I will in no wise cast out. God, remember that. Remember you said if I come to you, you will not cast me out. Remember what he said in Matthew chapter 10, that all who are weary and heavy laden, if you will come to me, I will give you rest. And you say, God, I need rest. I need rest in my soul. I need rest in my spirit. I need peace in my life. God, remember your promise. Or what if you came to God this morning and said, God, remember what you said in your promise in 1 John 1, 9, that if we come to him and we confess our sin, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to wipe the slate clean. What if we went to God this morning proclaiming his promises and clinging to them to be relieved of our burden? Let me tell you a story this morning of a guy in my church. I grew up in South Carolina and it's a church of probably about two or three hundred people. We gave an invitation every Sunday. It's like this guy went every week. He went every week. You know, and you think to yourself, man, what is going on in that guy's life? That, that he has to go to the altar every week. What is he doing? Because you look at his life and there was no, there was no outward indication that, that he was living that off the line. And one day... I got up the nerve to talk to him and ask him, man, why, why do you go forward every Sunday? And he said, because I always want to remember every week I need a fresh start. There are times I feel like that, that I need a fresh start. It's not necessarily that my commitment to the Lord, it's not necessarily that my, my faith has weakened or waned. It's just that little things creep in. Attitudes take hold. Habits creep in and, and it becomes not the person that you want to be. It's not the life that I want to live. And you want to just wipe the slate clean and start all over again. And maybe, maybe some of you feel that way this morning. And you would love to just wipe the slate clean and, and have a, a fresh start. And I know it's really easy in a church to think, well, we don't need a fresh start. We're doing okay. 
then we don't understand the subtlety of how sin slinks in and begins to divert us from God. See, for most of us, we don't find ourselves way on the other side of where God wants us to be all in one step. It just happens a little at a time. It's so subtle. And unless and until we feel a burden for change, then we're not going to wind up where God wants us to be. And so as we begin our invitation this morning, this is going to be a full 100% participatory response. Every week that you arrive, you're going to have another rock. Here's what I'm asking you to do. Maybe you've got a habit that you just cannot shake. Maybe it's not a habit that you're trying to kick, but maybe it's just a a decision, a way of living that you just can't quite seem to get there. I want you to feel the weight of that this morning. I want you to feel the burden, and not just this morning. I want you to feel it for every week that we have this series because it is by surrendering these things to God that we build the walls that restore our identity, that give us vision for the future, that give us protection from the world and allow us to focus on God. And so on each side, there are slots all around these front pieces And we're going to start in the middle sections and we're going to start from the front and work your way to the back and you're going to walk over to these sections and you're going to drop a rock in there. You're surrendering to God your burden. You're committing to God to rebuild the walls that have been broken down in your life. To reclaim your identity in Christ. To be restored to a preferable condition. And as you come and do that, the altars will be open. If you want to kneel and pray then please do so but I need everybody during the course of this this invitation to come and drop a rock and we're going to build a wall we're going to restore ourselves to who God has called us to be would you stand with me father as we conclude our service this morning God, I pray that through our responses that you will be pleased. God, help us to feel the weight of what we're carrying that we shouldn't. Help us to feel the weight of not living according to how we know that we should. And then God, help us to give it to you and rebuild the walls that restore us to you. In Jesus' name.